Good morning. It's uh, good to see you all, and uh, welcome to Line by Line. And uh, Mary and I are thrilled to be back with you, and uh, thrilled to get back into an expository study of God's Word. And uh, this morning, we are beginning a study in the book of Numbers. So as you're just looking in your Old Testament, uh, right there in the very beginning. And uh, the reason for this is that uh, we finished Leviticus some months ago. And in the course of, of my teaching ministry, I have taught uh, word by word, verse by verse, through Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. That, that leaves numbers. And you say, well, why, why, why is that so important? Well, as the foundation for our understanding of all of Scripture, the, the Pentateuch is absolutely absolutely foundational. The, the books of Moses, uh, the Torah, the, the, the Pentateuch becomes absolutely crucial. And uh, we understand that there's the basic division in the Old Testament, even referenced by Jesus, between the law and the prophets. And in particular, that means the first five books of Moses, and then Joshua through Malachi. And so that division turns out to be really important to us. And, and when you consider even a book like Numbers, we come to understand that it, uh, it is far more theologically relevant and important, even in the storyline of the gospel, than we might first think. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then onward. Father, we come before you, and in the name of Christ, we pray that you will bless this study of your word. And Father, even as Jesus raised up before us the importance of the books of Moses, may we do the same in order not only to understand these books, or in order to understand Israel and the Old Testament, but to understand Christ and the gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, there's a reason why Numbers was the last of the books to which I turned, because you basically have to take Numbers after Leviticus, or you're going to have to assume a whole lot. And what I want to show you first before anything else is the fact that the, the, the connection between Leviticus and Numbers is actually seamless. And so if you look at the very last verse of Leviticus, just turn back a page. The very last of uh, Leviticus, the last verse, chapter 27, verse 34, is this. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And then the first verse of Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, now this turns out to be really important and uh, the connection between Leviticus and Numbers is that you have this connective tissue that means this is immediately thereafter. And as we're going to see, the book of Numbers is somewhat geographically defined. Israel's here, Israel's here, Israel's here. That becomes central to the story. Israel is on the, the land around Sinai as the book of Numbers begins. And the Lord will speak to Moses again, and, and we'll, we'll be looking at that. One of our Christian problems, and, and, and this is really far more a Christian problem than a Jewish problem, with the book of Numbers is how it came to be named, uh, because it's not just about numbers, but it, it would sound like an actuarial table. 
which doesn't sound like it's very interesting to study at all, unless you are an actuary. Uh, in this case, the numbers are a reference to how the book starts, and there is a census of Israel. We'll be talking about why that's important in chapter 1. It's repeated in chapter 26. And so there are a lot of numbers here, and those numbers turn out to be both important and controversial, and that's going to be fun for us to look at as well. But that's how the word there was put there. When the, when the Septuagint came together in terms of the, of, the, of the Latin edition of the Old Testament, the word arithmoi was put on this book, and, and that has arithmetic. Uh, again, exciting to some people, not so exciting to others. But it's, it's actually the word numbers. So when the, the King James Bible, for example, and the Geneva Bible and others, in, uh, in, in, in looking to the Septuagint as that original uh, you know, the text of the Old Testament from which some of them translated, although many of them did go back to the Hebrew, but the, the name given to the book in the Septuagint stuck. And we're kind of stuck with it. And so... I mean, quite frankly, as you know, there are some revealed names of the books. So this book, this is, this book is, and that's from the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a name put on the book uh, so that it's not just the fourth book of Moses. It is uh, known in our circles as the book of Numbers. So we begin with a little bit of a liability in that the name of the book doesn't, doesn't particularly fit the book. Not that there are no numbers in it, lots of numbers in it, but simply because it's a lot more than numbers. However, it's also a bit different in its composition because it's unlike, say, Deuteronomy, uh, which will follow, in that it's not just unbroken historical narrative. There is historical narrative, but it's not unbroken, and there's other stuff in here. Now, in order to understand the book of Moses, I'm going to do what, so far as I know, no biblical commentator would do. And compare the book of Moses here, known as Numbers, to Winston Churchill's six-volume history of World War II, which is what every biblical scholar immediately goes to in his imagination. The reason is this. Churchill's magisterial work on World War II, six volumes, is unique because, of course, it was written by one of the major participants in the entire effort. In fact, one of the two or three men absolutely crucial to the fact that uh, there was an Allied victory in World War II. Uh, but Winston Churchill wrote that between two premierships when he was prime minister. And uh, he, there's a lot of it that, that is just beautiful written prose. Remember, Churchill won the Nobel Prize for Literature uh, for his history of the, uh, the English-speaking peoples. Uh, he's, he's a wonderful prose stylist. But the reader of the work on the Second World War, those six volumes, is going to be disappointed that there's a lot more there than Churchill's prose. Because what Churchill wanted to do was to document what actually happened in World War II. And so he actually put in lots of documentation in the text. So whereas a modern historian might make reference to it and put a bunch of stuff in the appendix, Churchill, for historians, made it very convenient and that he took all the, you know, say, the, the artillery reports and the things that were important to that, this particular decision-making, and he put it in the text. And so you're reading this wonderful prose, it's very moving, written in Churchillian language, and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, a report on munitions. And, 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 and thankfully, you don't have a 200-page report on munitions, but you may have a page and a half of the summary of why it was so crucial for this cabinet discussion. And uh, some people just find that very daunting, because they're thinking they're going to be reading 
you know, this pure narrative history. And the next thing they know, you know, they're looking at the number of spent canisters on the Western Front. And so it's a, it's a different thing, but that is the book of Numbers. So I actually think it's a good parallel to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is the same thing. It, it has historical narrative, but it also has documentation that's, that's put in this because Israel needed to know this documentation. Facts, statistics, um, things that are put in the book that are, uh, are not just historical narrative. Now, these are referred to as the books of Moses. And one of the first questions is, does that mean authorship? And historically, yes, that has meant authorship. So this means that at least in attribution, the authority of Moses is on these five books. Now, some snarky, you know, middle schooler is going to come up and say, yeah, but how did he write about his own death? That's why God made middle schoolers. And the answer is, it is his authority and his general authorship that marks these five books. This is not to say that there were not others who remain scribes who have been a part of that project, and uh, even one who was the one giving us the detail about the death of Moses. So that, that, that is not an assault upon the Mosaic authorship uh, of the first five books of the Bible. These carry Mosaic authority, and they are clearly personally attached to Moses and the words of Moses. It's through Moses that God speaks. And so we're accustomed to this, and God spoke to Moses saying. That is the formula. Now, this again throws us back on the Protestant scripture principle, which is our absolute dependence upon the Holy Scripture. Even in the course of the last week or so, I've had to talk to some people uh, who were a bit perplexed by someone saying that the Lord told them this or that. Well, you know, this is where evangelicals used to have a really good, say, uh, conscience and organ to know what to do with that kind of language, and that is test everything by Scripture. I I'm not saying the Lord did not tell you that. I'm just telling you that it's only important to me if the Lord told you that in the Bible. I hope that makes sense. But, I mean, pastors are stuck in this kind of situation a lot of times. People come up and say, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that. Well, first of all, we do believe in impressions from the Word, you know, like, I should marry this woman, uh, or, or, or ask her, anyway. <laughs> I mean, but, but they're not a verse. There's not, you know, 3 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 51, that says, you are to marry her, or to ask her to marry you. And so we understand impressions from the word. Puritans are very good at differentiating between revelation and impressions. But nonetheless, in our evangelical world, there are those who are quite slippery with this language. And they'll just say, God told me. And I was just reminding a pastor that the only determinative, authoritative, important speech from the Lord uh, to which we turn for our decision-making and counsel is, is the Scripture. It's Scripture alone. Uh, this, this, again, it's not just Scripture alone for the determining truth of doctrine. It's Scripture alone uh, for the Christian life. And so that's a, that's a tough thing to say, which is I'm not telling you God didn't tell you that. I'm just telling you God didn't tell me he told you that. Uh, it's not in Scripture. We're going we're to operate on the basis of Scripture. The important thing about numbers is, is that everything we have here is exactly what God wants us to have. And 
we were not there to hear God speak to Moses, uh, but uh, we know exactly what God said to Moses because of the Holy Scriptures. So, this is the fourth of the books of Moses. It is situated between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And that means that it is the period after the giving of the law and before the close of the book of, 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 the, of the work of Moses when they are at the threshold of the land of promise on the wrong bank of the Jordan River. So that should tell us how important this is because just in, if, if we were thinking just in terms of the story of Israel and Israel's conquest of Canaan, well, this turns out to be absolutely massively important because this is how Israel gets from the one place to the other and what takes place. And let's just summarize what takes place. Israel struggles and rebels. This is not a pretty picture of Israel found in the book of Numbers. But it is a picture of God's covenant faithfulness. And it is a picture of God's people struggling through things. And, and the difficulty for us is going to be imagining how you could get from Sinai where the mountain shook and, and the voice of God delivered the law and Moses came down his face radiant with the books of the tablets and then the giving of the law in its, uh, in its entirety through the direct speech God gave to Moses in Leviticus. How, how do you come down from that with the generational rebellion that we see? in the book of Numbers. Well, it's very, very telling to us. It's, uh, it's very humbling, very chastening. We're going to encounter all of that. All right. We're going to turn to the, to the first chapter and just understand two things immediately, and that is why it was referred to as the book of Numbers, but then more importantly, what this tells us about the promise of our study of this book. We begin in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, and here's the formula. We know it. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So this is the timing, the second month of the second year after they come out of Egypt. Now, this reminds us of something else. This is space, time, and history. This is, this is not... You know, a, a, a narrative of once upon a time. We're told exactly what time this is. This is no once upon a anything. This is very clear and absolute truth claim of the historicity of these events. This is in the timeline of Israel, second month of the second year. Now remember, we in verse 1, with the Lord saying to Moses, and here's what he said, verse 2. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elizabeth, the son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shmuel, the son of Zerishadai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Abinadab. From Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, 
Elishema, the son of Amahud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedahuzur, from Benjamin, Abaddon, the son of Gidnai, from Dan, Ahazer, the son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, the son of Achran, from Gad, Esaphath, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Okay, so that sounds, I think to most people, like just a historical record. This is like something put up on a bulletin board. You know, here's who's to do the census from this tribe, this man, from this tribe, this man, from this tribe, this man. But as you might expect, everything here is loaded. Everything here is loaded with meaning and significance we need to pay attention to. First of all, God speaks to Moses about the census that is to be taken. And the census itself turns out to be very, very interesting. And and we'll follow that through. But this is God ordering Moses. So the census is not the idea of Moses. The census is God's plan. Now, Now, we will see this becomes important because Israel is about to enter into a conquest of land that requires an army. And you better know how many you've got. But there's a far deeper issue, as we shall see, and this is God's covenant promises, including the promise to Joseph, as was the promise to Abraham, about the number of their descendants. This is going to turn out to be a really big, big story. But at this point, we don't have the numbers yet. We just have these names, and and the names are a challenge. And uh, you see how all these names come together, some of them familiar Some of them, no doubt, less familiar. Some of them referenced elsewhere in the Pentateuch. Some of them not. But three things are said of every one of these men. And you see this at the end of the paragraph we just read. Three things are said about them all. Look at verse 16. These were the ones chosen from the congregation. Just think of those words. Think of those words. Think of how we would think of that today. These men chosen from the congregation. That's familiar language to us. This is new to Israel It shows you how important this is now, these these tribes as institutions. These were the ones chosen from the congregation. Here are the three things about them. The chiefs of their ancestral tribes. The heads of the clans of Israel. So number one, they're the chosen from the congregation. Number two, they're the chiefs of their ancestral tribes. And number three, they're the heads of the clans of Israel. This is massive. Massive. So what does this tell us? Well, it, it tells us that Israel is not just a bunch of wandering people. It tells us that Israel is a nation of tribes. And that in the nation of tribes, there is a patriarchy, which you see involved in Israel's basic structure. And this this patriarchy means that these men are the chiefs of their tribes. And and as you see here, it's not just that. They're not just the chiefs of the tribes, of their ancestral tribes. They're also the heads of the clans of Israel and the ones chosen from the congregation. So that tells us that these men have the authority of their own tribe. They are communally understood to be responsible for Israel. Uh, They're the head of the ancestral clans. This is massive. This is massive. Um, One of the interesting things that happens, for instance, in the history of Britain and the relationship between England and Scotland is that Uh, they're they're not organized the same way. And and historically, the political organization was very different. And so the monarchical structure 
of England was built around a hereditary aristocracy. And uh, you still know it today, you know, dukes and counts and barons and viscounts. You go down the list. Um, But but, uh, England England was established as, as this hereditary monarchy and eventually, of course, had a parliamentary system that was, uh, that was developed. But the, the idea is that the security of the monarchy, other than the divine right of kings, was, the, was this aristocracy of, uh, of, of landed gentry who basically uh, worked together. And, and even as there were regional differences in England, the north was, was quite different. And, of course, in the Reformation, the north was more resolutely Catholic than was the south. So th- there are differences. Scotland was a different matter entirely. And this is, this is why we have tartans. So, a little fashion impact here. But in Scotland, the family clans were what was so important. Now, it's not to say family wasn't important to the South. Hereditary aristocracy was modeled after hereditary monarchy. But it's still quite different because at least far quicker than in Scotland, those aristocratic families didn't have private armies. Whereas in Scotland, the clans had their armies for a very, very long time. And so you had a council of these clans that was the decision-making of some of the most important things that took place in Scotland rather than a king's council the way you would have it. So the relationship between the king and the clans in Scotland is very different than the relationship between the king and the aristocracy in Britain. Well, Israel's more like Scotland, or historically it would be more accurate to say Scotland's a lot more like Israel in this case. And so you have here the natural, chosen, recognized authority of Israel in these men who are going to organize this census. That tells us not only about these men, it also tells us about the importance of the census. It turns out this is going to be absolutely crucial. Think about that. It's not the first time or the last time. I guess in in one sense it is a first time. But it's certainly not the last time that a census becomes very important to salvation history. All right, so then let's see what follows. Beginning here in verse 17, Moses and Aaron took these men from, that is, who they had been named, And uh, on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. So the greater specificity keeps coming at us here. So it's not just, we're counting men 20 and above. And it turns out that's basically 20 to 60. So you've got a 40-year span there. Uh, Those are the men who are counted. As the Lord commanded Moses, you see here in verse 19, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, let's just follow through. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Of the tribe of Simeon, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, Those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the people of Gad, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. 
Of the people of Judah, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Judah, were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Issachar, were 54,400. Of the people of Zebulun, their generation, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Zebulun, were 57,400. Of the people of Joseph, namely of the people of Ephraim, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim, were 40,500. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh, were 32,200. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Of the people of Dan, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are those who were listed, whom, Aaron, or whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, all those listed were 603,550. Now, some of you are doing that math in your head as we went along, no doubt. But there's the cumulative total. 603,000 plus. Okay, so how does that strike you? How, how is that to strike us? Okay, well, let's get out of the mechanics for a moment of why the census was immediately necessary, and let's just remember the promises of God that were given in the covenants. And most importantly, you have the covenant promise to Abraham that his seed would be more numerous than the sands on the shore. You have the, the promise given to Joseph about his descendants. Okay, so here we have a number of generations, but it's a finite number of generations. It's a number of generations from the time of Joseph to the time when Joseph was forgotten. They knew not Joseph. And then the time of the Exodus, and remember that some within the generation of the Exodus are alive to this day. So it's a relatively short amount of time in terms of generations. Seventy people were with Joseph in Egypt. Seventy. Seven, zero. Now the descendants are listed specifically by number, by tribe, of the men who are 
20 years and older as 603,550. Okay. So the first thing that should hit you is that this is a massive demonstration of the covenant promises of God that are fulfilled. Because Israel has gone from nothing, well, 70 people in Egypt, to 600,000 men, 20 and upward. And, and the specificity of this, it's so beautiful. It's very typical of ancient Near Eastern history. So in other words, this is not just something that appears in a book like Numbers, but it's very typically um, an effort to be so well documented that it can be beyond question that these numbers are to be trusted. So if you're Asher Bannerpal, uh, you know, a, a pagan emperor, and you come up with this kind of numbers, if you're, if you're putting the numbers down like this, you're intending to say to yourself, and you're intending to say to your people, and you're intending to say to posterity, I'm going to die on these numbers. But then that raises another issue, and this has to do with the census. And this is also something that you see in the, the, uh, the infancy narratives of Jesus, when Caesar Augustus sets out a decree that all people are to be taxed, and a census is taken. And, and who would be in that census? Well, well here, here's, here's the fact, and you can say this is just a matter of prejudice. It's also a matter of economics and, and of sociological reality. It's a counting of men. Because where you find a man, you find a family unit. And others are extrapolated from that man and the family unit that he represents. And uh, so that's what you see about the Old Testament and in the New. This is what Israel did in the wilderness. It's what Rome did, you know, in the first century. But this census that is found in Numbers is not about taxation. It's about war. And so this becomes important in a, in a different way because now the big issue is how many men does Israel have to muster for the conquest of Canaan? Because here again, the covenant promise that was given from 70 people to 603, 550 men at, between the ages of 20 and 60, or at least those who are over 20 and thus of able, uh, who are able to fight that tells you something else about how this worked, just in terms of even the lifespan and that expectation. They're not sending teenagers to war, but uh, they're sending 20-year-olds to war. Israel needs to know its numbers. So there's the, there's the name of the book. Israel needs to know its numbers. And not because the numbers are going to be the assurance of, of victory in every case, but let's just put it this way, a failure of numbers is a big problem for a conquest because remember the conquest wasn't merely military, it is also reproductive. That's the other thing. So don't miss the fact that the covenant that God made with Adam and, and the covenant thus that, that's true of all humanity and the covenant that was made with Israel specifically is reproductive. So it's not just that there is to be uh, 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 an ample supply of warriors who can go into battle for the conquest, you need an adequate number of men who can marry and have children in the land of promise and thus be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and in Canaan offer a picture of what God's covenant looks like in the land, in the crops, uh, in the tabernacle, later in the temple, and, uh, and, and in the homes of Israel. All right? So the census is taken. 
And the census adds up to a, a, a large number of men, 603,550. So we have to extrapolate now. And, and this is exactly what historians have to do with much of ancient history. You have to extrapolate total population. How do you do that? You have to have a factor that on average allows you to estimate the total population from the number of men of adult age. Okay? So, many ancient, many historians of the ancient, not ancient historians, many historians of ancient history uh, suggest that something between 2.5 and 3.5 is the appropriate number. Of course, this depends upon pestilence and plague and war and all kinds of other things, circumstances. But, in other words, you're not usually far off if you extrapolate, extrapolate uh, from, uh, from a factor of, say, 2.5 to 3.5. So if you just use 2.5, then you're looking at a total population of, uh, of Israel. Some, uh, you know, 603,000, just multiply that, say 2.5 or 3.5. And so you're ending up somewhere, say, between 2 and 3 million people in terms of total population. Um, so that's, uh, that's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people to move. So a lot of people to move into Canaan. It's a lot of people to be responsible for. But on the other hand, it's God's covenant promise fulfilled already. Look at all these. If you have 603, 550 men ages 20 and upwards... You've got a nation, and, and that's, the, that's the thing. This is a nation. Israel is now a nation. It was a nation before, a holy nation by God's elect purpose, but now it's a nation in terms of people. And you see that even in the way the men who are conducting the census are introduced in terms of the chiefs and, and, and heads of their clans and of their families and the ones chosen uh, and anointed for this task. And so this is a nation. You, you've, got, you've, got, you, you've got a government here with, it, with, with these, these 12 men. And, of course, with Aaron and with Moses and what's already been established in, in Leviticus, and, and that's the priesthood, which is going to come up very important because it turns out that uh, the, the tribe, the, 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 the Levites are not included in this uh, census because they're not, they're not to go to war because of their priestly responsibility. So, again, the numbers, the numbers just grow upon our realization. Okay, so... Here we have a claim made in Scripture you may never have confronted before. So you confronted it now. Now you got it. Okay, so now you got to deal with this. How do you get from 70 to like 2 million in just a matter of a few generations? Okay, so you're either going to believe these numbers or you're not. Now, this was not a problem until the modern age with the rise of modern liberal biblical criticism. And this is a good thing for us to think about as we're looking at the text of Numbers and getting started. So with the Enlightenment and with the rise of modern biblical criticism, you had people saying, you know, we need to take a closer look at this. Let's, let's not look at this. And this, this is later it was called bracketing. Let's just bracket the supernatural as if we're going to look at this text as if we're not going to call this the Bible. We're going to look at this as ancient Near Eastern history. And we're going to ask ourselves, the liberals said, how plausible is this? And working backwards, what does this text tell us about the agenda of those who wrote it? 
and the historical context in which it was written. So that, I mean, that, that, that's how you had you know, modern biblical criticism arise in those circles. Uh, they, they were looking at this as ancient Near Eastern history, uh, and it was even referred to at the time as Orientalism, uh, ancient Near Eastern history. And so you're going to look at this within the plausibility structures of Enlightenment Europeans, uh, especially in the 19th century. And of course, theological liberalism and the same biblical criticism spread to the United States and the English-speaking world as well. So you look at these numbers, and what they said was these numbers are impossible. There is no natural process of reproduction that can explain this vast uh, increase in Israel in a relatively short amount of time. And so these numbers must be symbolic of something. And, uh, and then, of course, you have a problem with the entire Pentateuch, and this is where modern biblical criticism directed so much of its attention, because if you're going to question the truthfulness of numbers, well, you've got to question the truthfulness of Genesis 1. In other words, the, the whole project becomes now suspect. All of it is going to have to be bracketed. It's going to have to be all subjected to a literary and historical analysis according to the standards of the time, as if it's just any other text. So even when you had the Graf Wellhausen thesis and other things going on, you know, with the, the documentary hypothesis about the writing of the Pentateuch, you know, we have different strata here, different strata there, uh, different sources and all the rest. They tried to explain all of this, but they also had to explain why the Pentateuch is the way it is. And the only way they could explain it is by saying that this is an idealized history of Israel written after Israel was at its mature stage. So if you understand, like, modern liberal biblical scholarship, you know, where, where do they end up with this? They end up with saying, this basically has nothing historically to do with Moses. This has nothing historically to do with the conquest. And all of this is just a commentary or explanation or mythology written after Israel was already in Canaan in order to justify and explain how it came to happen and how they, how they came to be there. Now, of course... Our evangelical response to that is, well, then, what is the Bible? And so it's helpful, actually, to look at this and recognize that we really are facing a binary choice. So I, I just, it, it's good for us as believers to recognize we really are facing a binary choice. This is either the Word of God, inerrant, infallible, totally true and trustworthy, or it's not. And if it's not, we probably have better things to do with a Sunday morning then come and study the book of Numbers. I have no idea why you would find it so fascinating, except I do have this thesis that if the world were as secularized now at the time that Protestant liberalism came up, they wouldn't have ever expended that effort. The problem was, for the liberals, is that Christianity had such cultural power in the 19th century that the Bible was something they were going to have to deal with, and so they dealt with it the way they did but I want us to see that binary choice. You know, it, it, we either believe this is the inerrant and fallible word of God or it's something else. And if it's something else, we're doomed and I quit. Uh, that's the bottom line. But this is the word of God. And the amazing thing is, the closer you look at it, the more authoritatively it presents itself. Because you'll notice the numbers for instance, the, the numbers are so specific, clan by clan, tribe by tribe. Uh, and, and, and frankly, again, that will come up 
in chapter 26 with the repeat of the census. And so, you know, there's, there's no internal logic as to why that would be done the way it is unless it's true. But you look at this and you recognize if you are going to war, you need to know how many men you have to go to war. And so the immediate purpose that it appears God called Moses and spoke to him and told him to conduct the census was for Israel to know where it stood in terms of its young men ready for battle. But there's so much more here. And that's why, by the way, the word numbers, even though it's not a good summary of the, of the entirety of the book, it is profoundly how the book starts. And so the numbers are very much a part of the, of the story, are very much a part of, of the text here. So here we have 603,550 men. In case we weren't doing the math, it's given for us there, as you see in verse 46. And I also want you to notice, this is not mere numbers, they're lists. That's another amazing fact of this census. Now, I love the fact that the U.S. census data information is now available to all citizens online. And I don't know if you ever spend any time, I warn you, it is a project, you know, it's, a, it's, it, it's like a well you fall into and you just get deeper and deeper into it. Uh, I discovered one of my uncles wasn't born where I thought he was born, simply because the census data shows. It doesn't really matter a whole lot to his life story, because he was moved as an infant, but I thought he was born in Florida, turns out he was born in Indiana. Well, you look at that and you recognize, okay, this is, this is data, and it's all handwritten, so the census takers, you know, even well into the 20th century, they're writing down every name, and so they do it the same way. You, you, you have the family, you have the mother and the father's name, and then indented on another line in, in several of these censuses are the listings of all, the, of all their children who are resident in the home. And so it's, it's, very, it's very interesting in the numbers, you know, that are given. So it's good for us to know that this census was also one by name. It's the summary that gets reported here, and the criteria, of course, are repeated every single time with the tribes. So, here we have this transitional passage directly linking the last verse of Leviticus and the first, the first verse of Numbers in a continuing narrative, and the first thing that we have in Numbers is this census, and the numbers are huge, just absolutely massive. But there is more to the story, as you might imagine. And so then we continue in chapter 1 with verse 47, But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. So instead of 12, it was 11, actually. You shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is, set, is to set out, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levite shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath 
on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So now we discover that one tribe is set out uh, uh, different than all the rest. This is the Levites, the priestly tribe, that are given the responsibility of what we call the Levitical priesthood. And they are given this assignment. They are not to be numbered in the same way because they are not to be considered as soldiers because their task is not going to be the conquest by soldiering. Their task is to be the stewardship of the priesthood. And they are to give attention to the mechanics of this. They are to camp around the tabernacle. So if you think of where Israel is situated, even physically, even physically, they're organized by clan and family and tribe, and, and, and they have their standards you know, around their tents so that you can visually look and see, okay, this is this tribe, this is this clan, this is, this is you know, right down to most basic units. They're camped together. Now, the, this was organizationally very important because there were responsibilities given within the tribe and, and, and just the family responsibilities, taking care of children and all the rest. And so they were together, but they were separate in these tribes. They were one nation, but they had these separate tribes. But the Levites are different than all the rest because of their priestly responsibility. And this is geographically or spatially represented in the fact that they are to camp around the tabernacle of the testimony. So they, 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 they are to be, in one sense, a guardian, but they're also the stewards. They, they, they are those who are going to live by the tabernacle. And they are, of course, to be responsible for the tabernacle. When the time of movement comes and Israel shall move, you're going to have the other clans, the other tribes, responsible for the movement, the security, the provisioning, all the rest. The tribe of, of Levi is going to be responsible for taking down the tabernacle, transporting the tabernacle, and resetting the tabernacle as a part of their priestly duties. But you'll also notice that there's something else here. There's Sinai. Sinai's going to go with them in a sense. This is very important. It's, it, it's, it's not just that the tabernacle's going with them. In one sense, Sinai's going with them, and it's in the warning. The, the warnings that were given to the children of Israel, even as the Lord was about to speak to Moses, and Moses was about to go up into the mountain, they weren't to touch it. Lest they die. Lest the wrath of the Lord be kindled against them. And that shows up right here. The very same thing. And if any outsider comes near, and this means outside from Israel, he shall be put to death. It, this, is, this is a holy responsibility. It's a holy space. It is to be treated there. And then verse 53, But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. So it's not just a warning to outsiders, it's also a warning to Israel to respect the priestly authority that is given to the Levites as they are responsible for camping around the tabernacle and for setting it up and taking it down and for all the rest. And then it begins, as we see in chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. And then we come to the very last verse of the first chapter. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Well, when we are together next, we're going to be looking at chapter 2 and the arrangement of the camp. Again, what looks at first like a banal, perhaps 
boring documentation turns out to be the setting of the stage for God's fulfillment of the covenant. And already, by documenting the census, a sign of God's faithfulness to the covenant. Israel's gone from being a few to many. And remember, it was because they were so numerous that Pharaoh was worried about them. In other words, that, that, that's, that is the pretext uh, to the, uh, the exodus itself because of Pharaoh's treatment of the Israelites because of their reproduction. And now that reproduction is continuing. Their nurseries are full, and the census is massive. This is God's covenant promise being realized, and it's being realized now as Israel's in the wilderness. It is to be realized more fully in terms of the covenant blessings and also the covenant assignment as Israel will take the conquest of Canaan, cross the River Jordan to the other side. That seems a long way from here, and it is in the sense that we have numbers before us and then we have Deuteronomy before us, and then, and only then, is there the break between the books of Moses and everything that follows. But you can't get there until you get through this. And, as we shall see, there is constant covenantal teaching here in, in, in uh, Numbers that will be referenced in the New Testament and becomes essential for our understanding of Christ and His work as the mediator of a new and better covenant. So it's been a privilege to look at the first chapter of Numbers with you, and uh, there'll be some other issues that, kind of like the, uh, the liberals responding to uh, the Pentateuch and trying to explain it, um, the fact is, is that the liberal assault upon the Pentateuch is one thing, but the evangelical neglect to the Pentateuch is another thing. And so our problem has been just generally the neglect of books like Numbers, and hopefully uh, we will correct that over the course of, of this study. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank God for the honor of studying this text together. Father, we do come before you just with great gratitude, not just that we get to study this book, although, Father, we're so thankful, not just because it's included in the canon of Scripture, but for, for that, Father, we're so thankful, but Father... We're so thankful that we see your glory and your covenant promises fulfilled to Israel. Father, the 603, 550 men, Father, you're showing your glory in this. You're showing what you can do and only you can do. You're showing how you are true to your word. And Father, as true to your word as you were to Israel, you are to us in Christ. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.